electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli. Jim Cramer is enjoying some time off. First day of June, final month of Q2. Uh, the tone is risk on as the long weekend ushers in a new chapter of America's economic reopening. It's a big week for data. We'll get ISM tomorrow, the jobs number on Friday. Our roadmap begins with the reopening rally. The S&P eyeing a new record as COVID cases continue to drop. And more than half of all Americans have at least one dose of the vaccine. Plus, meme stocks, uh, they're surging. Theater chain AMC selling new shares, and its CEO saying it's playing on offense again. Seeing GameStop shares also moving higher. Sorry, uh, and the crypto crumble. Bitcoin price is tumbling 36% in May, the worst month since 2011, and moving lower again this morning, Carl. Mike, it was interesting listening to you talk with the, the squad gang about uh, the seasonality of the market. But, David, certainly you look at the anecdotal reporting over the weekend and it does appear that Americans are out and shopping and spending money, uh, the kind of reopening that we've long hoped for. Yeah, it looks like it's here, thankfully, uh, and not a moment too soon. And, yeah, uh, the reopening, I mean, and we can continue to look at inflation as well. Mike, a lot of people focus this morning on oil, for example. Um, and whether or not that move is transitory, uh, but certainly goes to the idea that a lot of people moving around and using a lot of gasoline as well, but also to larger issues that we've been dealing with for quite some time, having to do with how much capital spending is going on in that industry and how much really will be spent additionally to to get more out. Yeah, if you look at the uh, the year-over-year increase in gasoline prices, the last time it was this large was 2010. So essentially, it's always coming off a depressed state when the economy is kind of crippled. So at this point, this level, I don't think it's necessarily getting in the way. I think a big question, though, Carl, is whether the market, even into March, kind of was was banking on exactly this phenomenon we're seeing right now. At what point does, oh, we have a record, a post-pandemic record in, in, you know, TSA traffic. We have a post-pandemic record in movie box office. I mean, that's just kind of what we've been positioning for, it would seem, uh, for a while right now. It doesn't mean it loses its effect, but I will point out that the market bottomed uh, in, in March of 2020 a lot before those numbers started getting much better. In other words, the market kind of tries to lead that. So I think the market in general is in good shape. It's rested for about six weeks. Uh, but June, not that great seasonally, usually. Uh, and everybody's on alert for the fact that do we have any payback to have, you know, for a 90 percent 13 month rally or, or not. So uh, the historical yeah. stuff would yeah. say maybe, but not yet. So that's interesting, Mike. I mean, it does sort of feed that you were talking about this with Becky a moment ago, the notion of whether or not the market conversation gets a little tougher 
as we get into the summer, whether that's because infrastructure becomes a bit more of a partisan discussion or the jobs number is strong enough this week to get Powell talking about talking about tapering or whether all the inflation that we've been seeing starts to feed into corporate margins. And, of course, earnings season for Q2, unbelievably, is only about five or six weeks away. Yeah, exactly. I, I do think there's something about, you know, what can we expect in terms of the trajectory of earnings from here? You know, been spoiled by a 50 percent year over year increase in the first quarter. Uh, the numbers have gone up massively for this year. And I think that the general sense out there is that they may continue to go higher and therefore the market's less expensive than it appears. That's the thing that might get challenged in the next couple of quarters here, just because of, you know, cost increases and things like that. And whether we've seen a little bit of, you know, bottlenecks. But, yeah, all that stuff is is now in the mix, Carl. I do think that you no longer it's it, it no longer feels like being excited about the real economy is is an edge right now because it seems like we're all <laughs> using that as the premise for what's been going on for months here. Yeah, well, we'll certainly cover uh, every incremental chapter of, uh, of the reopening. But, David, um, you know, theatrical distribution is going to be a story as we look at Quiet Place Part 2. Yeah. Um, certainly encourage, directionally encouraging numbers at the box office. So although I will point out, if you look at uh, alternative data trackers, movie attendance has not been setting the table the way, for example, open table dined, uh, seated diners have been for the last few months. Yeah, well, interesting you mentioned that, of course, given AMC's move, Carl, uh, and not unrelated, I know, as well. Uh, you know, we'll see how many people come back to movie theaters over time. But let's not forget that prior to the pandemic, there were many who believed this was a model that was challenged to begin with, given what we all know are the trends that have been in place for years now. Uh, more and more availability uh, um, uh, amongst the streaming players for high quality content. And yes, there is a desire to see things and share things with people. Uh, when you can. But AMC shares, they're up on this Mudrick uh, capital uh, deal where they're buying eight and a half million shares uh, at a price of twenty-seven twelve a share. That's going to bring another 230 million bucks into AMC. But don't be mistaken, this is a deal. And I called Jason Mudrick. He's the man who runs it. Uh, he has not called me back. But my expectation is this is a deal to help support the bonds. Remember, Mudrick is a distressed debt investor. They have been a lender, so to speak, to this company in the past. They've converted. They've gotten certain fees in stock. They've sold that stock in AMC, by the way. It levels uh, down to two or three bucks a share. Uh, but in this case, Mike, it would appear likely that they own most likely a lot of bonds. And when you're talking about a company like this, which still has negative cash flow and very well may have negative cash flow next year as well, there is always going to be a question in terms of the credit worthiness. And so if you own a lot of bonds and you can actually increase the equity cushion significantly yes. and therefore their wherewithal to survive whatever may be coming, the bond price goes up dramatically and you benefit on that side. That appears to be what's going yeah. on here. I can't imagine these guys are just buying straight stock yeah. uh, at this level. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, some of the bonds last week of AMC are trading below 80 cents on the dollar. So if the equity deal jacks the prices of those bonds, yes, that's your profit. Or even there's if also, you get an upgrade from the rating agencies, a, which is always possible. Too. Absolutely. And there's all kinds of ways you might have been able to trade around this. The, the options volume in AMC last week was so intense and wild that, I mean, I'm just... You can just spitball and say, I could just sell some crazy out-of-the-money calls, make a huge percentage of what I'm spending to buy new stock. Right. And, you know, you're hedged in that, in that matter. So there's a lot of opportunities that have been created by the mania for this stock, which uh, I think makes sense to talk about in, you know, yes, it's a movie theater play. Yes, it's a reopening play. 
but it's also just kind of gotten caught in this jet stream of wild meme stuff. Right. Uh, you know, but what's interesting, I mean, many would argue, and we're going to get to analysis, yeah. I think, in a moment as well, but that GameStop, however absurd some may believe it is in terms of its current valuation, you can at least imagine them making a significant change in their business model. It seems somewhat harder to imagine that with AMC. Exactly. And therefore, I mean, they are going to just go about showing movies, with which, by the way, continues to be a challenge business in some ways, given... I mean, again, something, Carl, and we've all discussed a lot is the closing window, the fact that your availability of a, of a key title at home is almost as immediate as these right. days is going to see it in the movie theater, which is yet another challenge for that industry. And that's what they deal in. That's what they're in. Their major shareholders are all out. Silver, uh, you know, Silver Lake is out. Uh, Dalian Wand is out. And at prices that are less than half yeah. of where we are right now. Yeah. And um Without a doubt. So there's not really a transformation story attached to this, even in the hypothetical, too much anyway. But let's let's talk in a little more detail about uh, about AMC here. We're joined by Chad Bynan of Macquarie. Um, you know, uh, Chad, how do you put in uh, today's equity raise in the context? I mean, you have a company here that's gone from about 100 million shares outstanding a year or so ago to 500 million. They've added more debt. So there's a lot of capital behind this business, which is still a challenge. So uh, how do you evaluate it? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it, it's obviously a, more, a difficult one here. Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC, he's stared death in the face several times at different companies. And I think he's really just embracing what's going on in the retail market. Um, from our perspective, from a valuation standpoint, we look at these as, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15 times free cash flow businesses. So from a um, fundamental standpoint, we look at what AMC did in 2019. We do think they can get back to those EBITDA free cash flow levels. Um, the equity raise that they've done uh, in the past couple of weeks, that'll help them potentially bring, that, bring down the deferred rent and reduced interest expense. But we think they can get back to somewhere between 50 cents and a dollar free cash flow. So then we value the stock off of that. So you were saying about 10 or 15 times free cash flow, so 10 to $15 a share. Is that what it comes to? You know, we're constantly reevaluating. This weekend was obviously a big, um, you know, due diligence weekend to just mm -hmm. make sure that demand is still there. But that's generally how we think about movie theater stocks, how we have in the past. I've covered, covered this company in the sector for, for over 10 years, and that's historically how the sector has traded. Um, and if you look at the comps, whether it's Cineworld, uh, Cinemark, um, IMAX or uh, Redding or Marcus, they're all still in that tight band of roughly 10 times free cash flow. AMC has been the one that has broken out from that. So it's tough to tell if there will be a re-rate upwards with the other ones or downwards from AMC. Uh, when do you see them getting back to that, those free cash flow numbers uh, in 23 or next year? For 2022, we're expecting 4% admission revenue decline versus pre-pandemic levels. And as a reminder, actually ahead of pre-pand or ahead of COVID, um, the nine-month trailing admission revenues were almost flat compared to record levels. So heading into the pandemic, we were actually seeing really good uh, visitation to theaters. So we expect this to be the case in 2022. There's a slew of movies, obviously, that we all know about that are just kind of waiting to be to be put in in, in these uh, in these theaters. Um, you know, the, the film rents and some of the other intricacies, obviously inflation has hurt uh, the, the, the expense uh, for these companies. That'll probably delay it maybe another couple quarters. 
But in 2022, 2023, we do think they can return to, to peak free cash flow. Hey, uh, you know, Chad, the um, well, two, two things. One, there was Adam Aaron's tweet about this not being a mindless dilution. And then there was the uh, headlines about it, the funds being used to enhance the uh, consumer appeal of theaters to acquire other assets and leases. I just wonder when you're when you are competing with big TVs at home and, and streaming convenience, can a better theater experience uh, be bought? Um. You know, I think so. The proceeds, three three items that Adam could address here. One, grow the grow the business. There are some, uh, you know, bankrupt or near bankrupt theater companies that just didn't have this availability of capital. So he would potentially act on that. Secondly, they have 450 million of deferred leases with some of the big landlords in the theater industry. That's something he wants to address. And then thirdly, as you talked about. They still do have a lot of conventional debt. We'd like to see them, uh, you know, bring those levels down and look at the company on a lease adjusted basis. So I think if he's able to grow the business by buying some of these other assets, you will obviously get the synergies from reducing the G&A uh, from those those corporate um, uh, offices. There's not much in terms of synergies beyond that. You know, I would like to see them potentially, you know, just address the leases, address the conventional debt versus growing the business. But those are the three items he's talked about with this equity raise or yeah. if the $500 million share is approved in July. Chad, on that equity raise, I mean, I don't know if you were listening. You know, I haven't spoken to Mr. Mudrick directly, but my expectation is that they're benefiting on the other side of the balance sheet or in a different part of the capital structure. I mean, is there any reason you could imagine for just buying straight equity at this level? Certainly, I think, you know, being on both sides of the capital structure, um, like a like a fund like Mudrick, um, you know, gives them several options. I think Adam has been in discussions here with uh, lots of their investors. And frankly, you know, he said that 85 to 90 percent of the current investors are retail investors. So to have someone come in, uh, you know, being being helped on, on their position on the debt side and then benefit on the equity side, it, it feels like it was, you know, kind of a. Uh, a, a very unique situation, to say the least. We also do have uh, Alan Gould from uh, Loop Capital joining us. Alan, uh, thanks for uh, for calling in here. So you've uh, been skeptical about there being much of any equity value uh, remaining for AMC uh, with a one dollar price target for a while. Does anything change with the with the equity raise with the plans potentially to roll up some other distressed theaters or anything uh, with the box office this weekend? First, Mike, thanks for having me on. Um, no, there's no change. To me, the, fundam you know, the stock just does not reflect fundamental values. I realize that can occur for a while. Eventually, I think it comes back to the fundamentals. I think the company's as smart as they could be in terms of issuing stock at current prices. But in our view, even if they long-term theater stocks trade at about seven and a half times forward EV to EBITDA on average, even if, if they issued 100 million shares at this price, then our dollar price target would go up to $5. But if I were Adam Aaron, I would issue as much stock as I possibly could at current prices. They don't have that many more shares authorized to sell. And I would use it to issue equity, make acquisitions, however I could use it. And, uh, you know, how do you filter into it what the new normal is going to look like? I mean, if we benchmark against 2019 uh, in terms of the theater attendance or anything else, uh, that was a year before you had most of your suppliers of movies also in, you know, more direct competition 
with, uh, you know, theatrical releases. So uh, where do you think movie attendance eventually gets back to? Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. I mean, the fundamentals of this industry have been steadily declining for years. I mean, if you buy a theater company at the right price and it's managed well, it throws off good cash flow. But attendance has been declining steadily since the year 2000. Um, and if you look what's happening now, there are fewer releases being made. We've got too many screens, not as many screens or theaters closed during the pandemic as we expected. Um, and the, the windows are shorter. Um, yeah, Netflix is now your largest producer of movies. Only a few of their films hit the theaters each year. And that, they only have about a one-week window in the theaters. Disney, which has been the dominant studio in the box office, they're taking Bob Chapek wants flexibility. His family-owned movies, uh, like Cruella, are avail available on premium video on demand day and date with the theaters. Even Black Widow, I mean, they're big Marvel and Star Wars pictures. They need the theaters. But even Black Widow, partially due to the timing, that's also going to be a PVOD release as well as in theaters. By the end of the year, the big Marvel films will be just have a 45-day theatrical window. All right. We'll see if all that uh, comes to bear on the stock. Stock has now uh, got given AMC about a $12 billion market cap. It's three times its peak market cap from uh, before COVID. So uh, we'll see how this all plays out. Chad, Alan, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Carl. When we come back, guys, we'll talk some infrastructure and the negotiations continue this week. We've got some M&A in Cloudera today and uh, got an upgrade of Boeing, which we'll talk about. Futures green as we kick off the month of June. Don't go away. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com.
Congress is out of Washington, but it's very much going to be a work week for us uh, and for the conversations that are ongoing with Congress. Uh, by the time that they return, uh, which is June 7th, just a, a week from tomorrow, we need a clear direction. Uh, you know, certainly encouraging to see the healthy conversations that have happened over the last days and weeks. But the president keeps saying inaction is not an option and uh, time is not unlimited here. I think we are getting pretty close to a Fisher cut bait moment. But uh, I'll tell you that uh, on, on the fishing side of things, the, the negotiations have been healthy. That's the Transportation Secretary on CNN Sunday talking about fishing or cutting bait when it comes to infrastructure negotiations. Eamon Javers has been covering this. And Eamon, as you pointed out earlier this morning, uh, two sides in terms of new money spent are very far apart still. They really are, Carl. And what you heard there from the from Secretary Pete Buttigieg is, you know, Fisher cut bait moment. That's sort of a soft deadline, not necessarily the hardest deadline you've ever heard in Washington. But they've already blown through the Memorial Day deadline that was set uh, some months ago. So, you know, this is a process that is not coming together. And what you're hearing from the administration is an attempt to put some closure to it and get Republicans to cut a deal by June 7th. The Republican senators have put together this plan at 900. $28 billion uh, that they say is their upper limit. The president has proposed $1.7 trillion. You look at that, you say, okay, well, they're not too far apart. But remember, the Republican plan uh, has a lot of old money in it. That is, they're repurposing existing spending. What Biden wants is new money spent at $1.7 trillion. And there's still these huge sticking points, the corporate tax rate, green energy, even the definition of infrastructure itself uh, has been part of the dispute here between the two sides. So you see Pete Buttigieg saying, you know, we got to do this by June 7th and have some sense of whether there's a deal possible. Uh, you know, you get to the sense that maybe there's not a deal possible. And if that's the case, then the Biden administration will have to figure out a way to do this on Capitol Hill through the budget reconciliation process. Uh, and they might be able to do it with only Democratic votes. Uh, but that's a dicey situation. And the president has said he'd prefer a bipartisan negotiation. So that's why they're going through this exercise for the rest of this week. So we'll watch those meetings carefully to see if they can actually come together and do something in this very polarized Washington, D.C., guys. Yeah, Amen. On Friday, it was Goldman Friday night, actually, that said, we expect congressional Democrats to pivot away from bipartisan talks in the next couple of weeks and begin to move forward with reconciliation. House passage by July. But September, Amen, you're, you're really talking September or October. Yeah, you are. And for the Biden administration, they understand that they're running out of political time. They have some real political clout right now. They've got some momentum behind them with the end of the pandemic or the, the slowdown of the pandemic, uh, the success of some of the stimulus spending that they have done so far. So they feel like, you know, this is the chance to get this done before they get into an election year. It's an enormous enormous project, an enormous bill, uh, and infrastructure projects across the country are hanging in the balance. But, uh, you know, they'd like to try this negotiating process first and try to see if they can have a bipartisan deal. Uh, but if they can't, you can see the political impetus is going to be, you know, just do the just do the bill. Right. Don't worry about the niceties of having Republican votes. If you don't have if you don't have them, you don't have them and move on. And it sounds like that's what Pete Buttigieg is saying over the weekend. Yeah, it was an interesting interview uh, with Tapper on Sunday. Uh, Eamon, thanks. Our Eamon Javer is keeping us uh, up to speed on infrastructure. We'll take a break here. Futures, as you know, looking pretty good to start this new day of a new month. Uh, we'll get to that, the opening bell, in about seven minutes. Don't go away. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome to the month of June. The S&P hasn't been down in June since 2015. Um, on average, though, it is the fourth worst month of the year. Average returns of just uh, less than a tenth of a percent. There's a look at the U.S. futures, though. Uh, things are encouraging on this first day. We're back in a minute. Live shot of the NASDAQ this morning. That's Anthony Noto. You might know him uh, over the years as a frequent CNBC guest. As SoFi begins trading at the NASDAQ after completing a merger with Social Capital, raising $2.4 billion in the transaction, uh, David, and a longtime member of the CNBC Disruptor 50, in fact, uh, a six-time uh, Disruptor 50 company, and the seventh to make its market debut via SPAC. Uh, that's interesting. The seven of, of, of 50. Yeah. yeah, we've had quite a few of them raising about 2.4 billion is what they're going to actually, uh, have raised from the, from the merger into the SPAC. Of course, it's uh, one of social capital SPACs, IPOE, um, at least for now, uh, is, is, is what that has been trading under. And as we know, Mike, many SPACs have been trading under $10 and or at 10 bucks. Yep. Don't know. I hadn't looked at where SoFi uh, sort of uh, ended. 20-ish. It had, it had done quite well. Yeah. 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 This is a little bit of the exception of the rule in terms of being a big established fintech, Carl. Uh, indeed, guys. There's the opening bell. Uh, for, uh, first one of this holiday-shortened week at the, re- at the big board. Uh, it's France's uh, Total Energies, formerly known as Total. And as we said at the NASDAQ, it is SoFi. We'll talk to Anthony Noto later on this morning on Tech Check at 11 a.m., Eastern time, guys. Uh, Mike, it's going to be hard to take your eye off of energy today as uh, Brent did hit its highest level since March. Yeah, for sure. And that's uh, those are the stocks that out of the gate are leading the S&P 500 too. no big, uh, no big surprise right there. Big argument within the energy sector as to whether uh, they still uh, qualify as being kind of neglected, cheap, the whole thing. And uh, they're getting another lift today. Uh, the, The reflation trade definitely had a break for a few weeks, or at least this kind of uh, kind of flattened out. Copper came off the highs, all that stuff. But uh, we did seem to get a restart. The overseas data has been better, despite the fact that you have a lot of news flow out of Asia about you know COVID restrictions being reapplied. Uh, European markets are breaking out, and it seems like the playbook, David, is in there for a little more of a, of a global acceleration, right or wrong. Yeah, even though it's it's not as clear that Things are accelerating Far Europe, to your yeah. point, right? Uh, That's right. It's, it's, it's the markets trying to peek ahead to it. The yields have been going up. Uh, and just I think the idea that 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 whole uh, that whole game plan of it's better when things are going to start to improve for markets than when they've already obviously improved. It's a way to play another reopening if you want to position toward uh, toward Europe once once we've uh, already kind of capitalized, Carl, on the U.S. reopening to a large degree. Yeah. Um, we did get a I was, I was noticing, guys, Boeing is leading the Dow this morning. And we did, David, get a nice upgrade of Boeing over at Cowan. Uh, Kai Von Rumer is a longtime analyst, uh, says he goes to uh, buy um, uh, 240 goes to 290, uh, basically on the notion of improving air traffic. But more than that, David, it's about the 
likelihood or the chances that international travel over time uh, does in fact recover, which would lead to more production of wide bodies, which are generally older, productions down 50 percent. And that's where you would be talking about another leg higher in Kai's view uh, for BA, despite all of the uh, regulatory uh, friction they've had versus with the Dreamliner and the Max in the last couple of years. Yeah, and even recently, right, Carl, there's been there's been more news and at least yep. some questions, but the stock has sort of forged ahead. It's up almost 19 percent for the year. Uh, there had been some production numbers that had been put out there, I guess, for the uh, monthly for the Max that uh, the company at least did not endorse. I think it was a Reuters report of a couple of weeks ago that got things going uh, a bit, Mike. But I always come back to business travel when you hear about international travel and sort of still the question marks there, I believe, in terms of whether it will ever reach quite the point it, it had uh, in 2019. Not that people aren't right. going to travel for business. I don't. Of course they are. But will yeah. they ever will they travel at the same uh, level. And, you know, uh, for example, uh, we were just talking about SoFi going public uh, through the SPAC. A road, road show? Never again. I mean, right. everybody I speak to who does road shows, <laughs> right. we will never travel for a road show again. They will do them virtually because, in fact, they're able to do it so much more easily and, frankly, reach more people sure. uh, and more potential buyers of any given stock. So there's one example of something that, at least based on all the comments I've heard, not coming back in terms of business travel. Right. It's easy to, to, to kind of forget for a moment that before the pandemic, the, you, know, you had massive load factors. Uh, airlines were running flat out. It was really the, kind of the boom times and a renaissance for the industry. So, yeah, how far do you get closer? Also, what's the real uh, sort of sensitivity of Boeing shares to just miles traveled, airline miles traveled? We, you, this stock benefited, you know, Boeing did back in the, in the, uh, in the heyday from the certainty of a multi-year backlog and free cash flow outlook. So it's, it's unclear, Carl, if you're going to get back quite to that level uh, of confidence in the outlook. Right. Um, interesting uh, opening action here, guys. Um, the Dow is trading above the May 7 record close. We still need a little farther to go to get an intraday high. Uh, same for the S&P, about four points uh, David, from an all-time S&P high, which would uh, would be another headline for us. I, we didn't do Cloudera yet. I wondered if you wanted to touch on that today. Sure, we can do that, and we'll come back to the broader market. I have a quick question for Mike as well. But, yeah, that deal that you just mentioned, Carl, uh, let's call it $4.7 billion equity value. They do have some debt. So they're, they're given a headline of $5.3 billion, but it's really about $4.7 billion. 16 bucks a share in cash is what you're getting. That's about a 24% premium to the close of the stock a few days uh, back there is, as we often see in these private equity deals, of course, a 30-day um, go shop. And I guess I should have mentioned it's Clayton Dublier and it's uh, KKR and it's all cash, of course, as you'd expect it to be, uh, given that. Mike, uh, you know, I don't have uh, comparisons on multiples for you here, uh, sort of to give you some sense. I, in a quick couple of calls this morning, doesn't appear to be a thought that there would be an overbid. So, yeah. uh, But I don't have great insight on that either. No. That's about all I got. Right. And it's, um, it's interesting how you have some of these, um, you know, kind of high concept cloud, you know, playing a big theme, the stocks that settle into kind of a range, which is what Cloudera did. And then private equity jumping on them because they seem to have this kind of reliable cash flow type nature. And, uh, you know, it's happened with other industries over the over the years. You get a certain level of maturity and somebody is no longer the absolute cutting edge of the next thing. And uh, and private equity uh, finds a way in, whether it's data centers or anything like that. You know, Mike, I did want to come back to you on something you and I have talked about a lot through the last few months. I mean, I, I was starting to get already some preliminary hedge fund numbers for the last month. They weren't great. Yeah, um, it was a tough month again because of the growth versus value trade. 
And, you know, when we look at a Nasdaq that is still trailing by over five hundred basis points in terms of performance this year, sort of bring us up to date on where things are. Right. It, well, what's interesting in the last several months is, or the last several weeks is that, you know, there hasn't been a day-to-day consistency of what the leadership is. Now, on a net basis, the NASDAQ is still lagging. It's up off the lows. Um, you know, th- something like a Facebook really had a good run at a new high. That's, you know, by some measures at Goldman Sachs, literally the most concentrated hedge fund holding, the single most uh, owned stock by right. hedge funds. But that doesn't mean it's working across the board. And so I do think it's been very whippy in terms of the rotations of just tough to catch. And if you, you know, it's, it's, it's just as easy to get them wrong as get them right from, from day to day. So going sideways in a range, uh, the S&P up 12 percent year to date. It's going to be tough for, for hedge funds that have any short exposure at all to, uh, to, to actually perform in that environment. So yeah. growth is not kind of down for the count. You have this great rally in, you know, the ARC uh, ETF and, mm-hmm. and those types of stocks off of a low. Now the question is, are we just reverting right back to cyclicals reopening, energy leading the way? And uh, it's just tough to navigate on. You know, yeah. On I mean, and with that said, Carl, we don't have many uh, stocks in the in 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 the red. But Netflix, I would point out, which is already down seven percent this year. Apple barely eking out a gain, but still down six percent so far for uh, for 2021. Yeah. You mentioned ARK, of course, uh, a lot of reporting over the last couple of weeks about uh, the interest of shorting various ARK instruments, Mike. And then there was a report today that Goldman has initiated a short of the long bond, I think targeting 255, uh, which would put the 10-year, I think, according to Nat Alliance, somewhere in the 1.7 range. I noticed we're a bit higher today, but it was remarkable to see us drop below 1.6 last week. It was, and it's just been very, very stuck and steady in that range for, you know, really since March. Uh, What's fascinating is, and there's a lot of work on this today, too, is there's not, if you looked at what's working in the stock market, you wouldn't think that uh, that yields being down was a big driving factor, meaning it's still mostly, you know, kind of industrials. You know, banks are doing fine. They're right at their highs, even though you haven't made a new high in yields. So it almost seems as if the bond market is just having this prolonged breather because it had such a huge move from half a percent on the 10 year up to one point seven, one point eight. And it's just been uh, kind of chewing through that for a while. And yes, there's been all kinds of global flows and all the rest of it. But yes, I, I do think if you looked at the chart, you'd say maybe now it's time uh, because it sort of kept its uptrend for that sell off in treasuries and the rise in yields maybe to resume for a little while. Not so much, sure how much juice is in there. Uh, and obviously, we've got a Fed meeting in the middle of this month that's probably going to have a lot to say about, you know, how people view uh, bond buying and the yield curve and all the rest of it, Dave. Yeah. Um, Carl, where we started the discussion, of course, oil should point out Exxon and Chevron both up uh, nicely. But don't want to forget last week, uh, that dramatic, historic week, really, for ExxonMobil. And by the way, we should get a preliminary count on um, on the proxy voting. And and as I had reported uh, late last week, uh, it's certainly possible, if not more likely than not, that uh, that engine one is going to get that third seat. So we may see a preliminary tally, I, I think, very soon. Um, but it could be a couple of weeks before we get the official uh, tally on that historic vote, Mike, that also may continue to sort of add not. I mean, in a way, seen as a positive, because how many companies are going, you know, as they try to change their profile or, or, or they're open up to these kinds of uh, questions slash attacks from activist investors in terms of at least their their carbon footprint, so to speak. Yeah. Um, will they spend even more on, you know, on capital to get to get oil out of the ground? That certainly doesn't appear to be likely. 
Right. No, it doesn't seem uh, at all. Puts him on the defensive on that score. Also, I think raises a little bit of a um, a question in general for the ESG mandate, the ESG ethos in the sense of like if everything's ESG is anything ESG. And I think there's been some work out there suggesting that it's pretty tough to, you know, to, to sort of figure out exactly what's getting done. But, of course, in a case like Exxon, there's actual you know, long-term strategic decisions that could be made in the direction of... Without a doubt. That's being, much yes, more black and white than some of the others. Friendly. But, yeah, and as you know, Carl, many of these index funds use it as one of their chief uh, chief ways to raise new capital. Is this ESG um, patina that they sort of put on many of their funds at this point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, talk about turning a large ship. There was a headline this morning, guys, that the share of EVs of all new car sales in Norway last month, you want to guess... 60.4, of new car sales in Norway in May were EVs. Now, whether or not that's going to remain an outlier globally uh, remains to be seen. But that's sort of the that is sort of the very long aspirational view, Mike, of the ESG community. By the mm-hmm. way, on a day where, where Elon Musk is talking about uh, prices going up because of all these supply chain yeah. pressures. And Norway, a country, a country made rich by oil. Oh, by, exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say, North Sea oil. Yeah. They got the greatest, the greatest <laughs> social security system in the world. Those five, six million people are living, you know, don't have to worry at all yeah. because of oil. And yet they're 60 percent of their. Oh, good for them. Proving it was just a transitional technology all along. Fossil yeah. fuel. Yeah. <laughs> How many years? About 100. <laughs> a little over. Right. Yeah, not too bad. Uh, Carl? I uh, know, but, uh, you know, we just showed that... We just showed that Musk tweet. And you couple that, Mike, with, um, you know, rising uh, prices in the auto business. Bullard saying the labor market is tighter than it looks. Um, The Journal uh, piece over the weekend about manufacturers now blaming inflation on tariffs and asking the Biden White House to roll back the the Trump tariffs on aluminum and steel. So all of this is is of a piece. It is, uh, without a doubt. It's I think by far the prevailing macro conversation is inflation. Uh, how fast does it move? Does it is it here to stay kind of thing? What does it mean for valuations right now? What's fascinating is uh, the Fed officials seem pretty confident that all they have to do is kind of signal that they're aware of what's going on <laughs> and to remind everybody that uh, more inflation is part of their goal is not it's not necessarily a side effect. Um, and so that's that's what makes it interesting as we get closer into a tighter labor market and a more, uh, you know, a kind of an economy that's more back to normal, whether they will stay with that. And I guess, again, the mid the mid-June Fed meeting, Carl, is the reason that uh, it's starting to gain some prominence as well. Yeah. And one more coda onto that part of the conversation, guys, whether or not this chip shortage uh, stays with us for a matter of quarters or a matter of years is something that Intel's Pat Gelsinger commented on in the last couple of days. Take a listen to this. This transformation has created a cycle of explosive growth in semiconductors, but it has also placed tremendous strain on supply chains around the world. While the industry has taken steps to address near-term constraints, it could still take a couple of years for the ecosystem to address shortages of foundry capacity, substrates, and components. If the past year has taught us anything, it's that the entire supply chain needs to rise to the occasion to ensure no individual bottlenecks limit growth for the industry. Lack of supply constrains the growth we need to refuel the world economy. Uh, interesting comments from from uh, Gelsinger, David. Uh, uh, Jim's, been, of course, been on top of this story from the beginning. 
I, I think Jim is still in a mode where he thinks we're going to smooth this out. Yep. Uh, in fact, it, it can point to a number of signs he believes that will yet indicate towards the end of the year it should be. Uh, but it's an infrastructure question, too, isn't it, Carl? And it comes back to kind of earlier conversation you were having with Eamon uh, in terms of where things stand, because that is part of the plan, I guess, to spend money and on key things uh, for overall for uh, continuing to sort of have a semiconductor industry in this country. Uh, at this point, Intel is more or less all we have when it comes at least to certain types of fabs. Yeah. And the collision with geopolitics as you want to lessen your reliance on on Asia Pacific. All uh, all important questions. Guys, we're uh, back to 4221. Let's get to Rick Santelli. Hey, Rick. Good morning, Carl. You know, the Treasury complex, of course, has been more about buying, pushing yields down, but not today. Look at a two week of tens. You know, last Tuesday and Wednesday, we had low yields, high prices of 155. We have turned the corner a bit. Uh, as a matter of fact, we had auctions last week. We had twos, fives, sevens. Uh, the twos aren't underwater. They're about a scratch. The fives are actually a scratch. Uh, or excuse me, ten, uh, sevens are a scratch. But the five-year, that's where the pain is. Uh, the auction went off with a whisker under 0.79. It's now hovering at 82 basis points. So about three basis points of loss there. We want to pay attention to that. All right, hitting the wire, our May final read on market PMI, uh, 62.1. A nice improvement over the mid-month read of 61.5, which now gets put in the wastebasket. 62.1 is a post-COVID high, and yet to come, we'll have construction spending and the national ISM all at the top of the hour. Let's get back to the chart, shall we? So twos, five, sevens were auctioned. Uh, right now, fives are underwater. The other two maturities are about to push. Look at a one month of tens. This is important because we basically exited April, around the exact same place we are entering June, around a 162 yield, which just popped to 163, the high yield, low price of the session. And just to demonstrate how the strength in equities with the reopening trade and all the money that's raining down from central banks is definitely pulling up interest rates by their bootstraps. As you can see on this chart, you know, the left side wasn't very correlated. The right side getting back in sync. Ideally, we want to see rates up, stocks up. And, of course, the dollar index up, the dollar index fighting, but losing the battle on the Canadian side today. One week of the dollar versus Canada jump up to a six-year because that's the last time the dollar index was at these weak levels. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick. Thank you very much, Rick Santelli. So we did get a big pop at the open. Dow was up 320 there for a moment, currently up about 150 or so. S&P on track for a fourth day higher, something it's not done since March. Squawk on the Street continues in a moment. Zoom is set to release... Quarterly results after the uh, close of trading tonight. Stocks in the red so far this year, but still up more than 800 percent since the 2019 IPO. Mike, I wonder what you make um, more of the bounce uh, from 273 in early May on Zoom and Peloton, that same basket. It's up 30 bucks from the low of 80. Yeah, it's um, I think it's sort of still uh, kind of guilty until proven innocent. I think if you would sort of take a, a kind of a broad approach to, to where it looks like it bounced up to, it didn't necessarily prove that, uh, you know, it's, it's headed anywhere near, you know, back to those highs. Uh, certainly, along with all the other 
hyper-growth stocks, they had a three-month bear market. And so I think once you do have a three-month bear market, you're going to get the bounces, and then maybe it, uh, it can you know, gather some, uh, some strength and traction over time and, and, and regain speed. But it, it didn't necessarily, uh, I don't think, change the whole uh, complexion here. I think you have uh, an issue with um, their earnings growth of these types of companies not looking all that great relative to just the average company out there because we're going to have such a, a strong snapback. So over time, growing into the valuation most likely, but um, probably still a little bit, uh, a little bit of a short leash. Yeah, uh, for sure. And the debate will continue as to whether or to what degree they are incorporated structurally uh, in our daily, certainly office life. We'll take a break here. As we said, we had a nice pop on this uh, first day of the month at the open, but the Dow gains have been cut roughly in half. We're back in a minute. President Biden floating the idea of retroactive capital gains taxes. Robert Frank joins us now. He's got some of those potentially painful details. Robert. Good morning, David. President Biden's budget calls for the largest capital gains tax increase in history to take effect more than a month ago. His budget released Friday calls for the retroactive tax hike that's raising the rate from 23.8 percent to 43.4 percent to start as of April 28th of this year. So if this passes, and that is a big if, and if you sold stocks or a company or a property after April 28th of this year, you could owe back taxes. It also means that all that tax planning that investors had hoped to do this year to avoid the tax may already be too late. Treasury also giving its first ever revenue projections for that increase, as well as the elimination of the step up in basis, saying those two combined would generate about $320 billion in revenue over the next decade. Some CEOs, investors, tax groups already opposing the idea of a retroactive tax. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon saying it would create extra anxiety and extra uncertainty. But there have been retroactive income tax increases in the past. Never, though, have we had a retroactive capital gains tax. Treasury saying this was all needed to prevent investors from avoiding the tax by selling assets before it takes effect. And guys, now, as we mentioned, all the plans for people that they may have had to sell assets before it could take effect next year, basically too late if it if it passes. Right. But what it has, what it does is it may prevent may not quicken your pace in terms of doing it, Robert, because you think, well, it won't really matter, which will have the same impact even if it isn't retroactive. Well, exactly right. And that's why it's so hard to predict capital gains tax revenue, because you're trying to model human behavior. And there are those who say when you get rid of step up and increase the capital gains tax, that will actually encourage selling because there's no longer an incentive to hold it until death. And there are others that saying, look, all of this together is just going to freeze assets for years until we get a change in tax policy. So we just don't know. Right. Well, we don't know a lot. And of course, as you point out, there are many who believe this is not going to actually happen. Robert, uh, appreciate your continued coverage. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.